The Israel Defense Forces are almost a full day into what they call a precise and targeted operation to hunt out Hamas in a hospital. What exactly does that mean? The lead starts right now. Inside that hospital in Gaza, now a military scene where Israel and the U.S. say Haman, Hamas is, is hiding a command center under the hospital. What, what's the goal of this targeted operation? Also, brand new on the lead, 100 minutes of horror. Exclusive video obtained by CNN from the body cam of a terrorist. For the first time, you can see video from inside a Hamas tunnel before that group's horrific October 7th attack. Plus, you might not believe this, Hunter Biden wants to subpoena Donald Trump. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. Gaza's largest hospital is under siege. Israeli forces launched a raid on the Al-Shifa hospital in the early hours Wednesday after accusing Hamas of operating from tunnels beneath the vast complex, a claim supported by American intelligence. A Palestinian reporter inside Al-Shifa hospital says the complex is surrounded on all sides. Explosions are shaking the walls and hundreds of patients and staff are blockaded Inside the complex, earlier at a different hospital in central Gaza, a man described what Hamas denies. Take a listen. That man clearly upset and claiming that Hamas hides among the people in Gaza. Interesting. Back in the United States, the White House insisting Israel did not give the United States any advance warning of this Israeli excursion at Al-Shifa Hospital as calls grow from Democrats and Republicans for President Biden to use his influence with Israel to implore the Netanyahu government to be more mindful of the humanitarian needs in Gaza. And in a war that seems to have had a tragically high toll on the children of Gaza, today's Israel's First Lady Sarah Netanyahu revealed that an Israeli hostage has given birth in Hamas captivity. So the youngest hostage now of Hamas is now a newborn. We're going to start with CNN's Nada Bashir. As doctors in Gaza are racing to save patients stuck in the middle of a massive military operation. <laughs> Weeks of bombardment had already left Gaza's largest hospital in what has been described as a catastrophic situation. Dr. Zal al-Shifa, working under impossible circumstances, caring for hundreds of patients as Israel's military incursion moves inside the hospital. The occupation soldiers are still on the ground floor. They are searching employees, civilians, even the injured and patients. Some were stripped and placed in dehumanizing and miserable conditions. Israel's raid on al-Shifa has been described as precise and targeted, focused, they say, on claims of a Hamas command center beneath the hospital. But it is civilians, including medical staff and patients, that have been caught in the center of this unrelenting battle. We can't look through the windows or doors. We don't know what's happening. We can tanks moving within the hospital. We can hear continuous shooting. now. But again, it's totally scary situation. So what are these sounds, doctor? I'm hearing sounds. 
It's continuous shooting from the tanks. Israeli defense officials say soldiers found concrete evidence that Hamas used Al Shifa Hospital as what they have described as a terror headquarters. The no further details were provided on the nature of this evidence. Both Hamas and healthcare officials have long denied a military presence within Al Shifa. CNN cannot verify either side's claims. The IDF has not specified which area of the large hospital complex they operated in. And with over a thousand patients and medical staff still inside, many have expressed alarm over the civilian impact of the Israeli military's operation. Our concern on the humanitarian side is for the the welfare of the patients of that hospital, which is, of course, in great peril at the moment. We have no fuel to run it. The babies have no incubators, uh, newly born. Some are dead already. We can't move them out. It's too dangerous. On Wednesday, the Israeli military said their troops had delivered incubators and medical supplies to the El Shiva hospital. CNN cannot independently verify this claim and has not been able to reach the hospital for confirmation. However, the Director General of Gaza's hospitals has warned that babies at El Shifa are in severe danger as conditions in the hospital deteriorate further, adding that there is no place to move dozens of incubators outside of the hospital under current circumstances. But even as Israel tightens its grip on El Shifa, now said to be under the complete control of the Israeli military, according to Hamas, Doctors say they will continue to do whatever they can to save the lives of those wounded in this devastating war. Look, Jay, the UN's humanitarian relief chief, Martin Griffiths, has described this uh, raid on El Shifa as appalling, but has called on both sides to prioritize the safety of civilians at the El Shifa hospital complex. As we know, more than a a thousand patients and medical staff there, as well as civilians around the complex. And of course, while we are still hearing those calls for civilians to evacuate southwards, doctors are saying it is near impossible to get the vast majority of these patients out safely in the country conditions they are facing. Jake. All right, Nada Bashir, thank you so much. Appreciate it. CNN's Ed Lavendera is in Tel Aviv. He has more information on this ongoing military operation uh, by the Israelis in Al Shefa Hospital. Ed, let's take a look more closely at the sprawling hospital grounds. What do we know? <coughs> pardon me. What do we know about where the IDF is operating? Well, it's not specifically clear where uh, some of the latest information that military officials uh, have put out. But as you can see from that uh, that that uh, uh, picture of the hospital, it is a massive complex. Um, and Israeli military officials had said that they had gone through there before this raid, which took started almost 24 hours ago, urging people to get away from the windows um, and, and seek safer areas in there as these military operations began. Uh, the uh, Israeli military also says uh, that uh, this afternoon uh, they released some details saying uh, that they had uh, concrete evidence of how this area was being used as a command and control uh, operation area for Hamas military uh, fighters and they said they started uh, releasing uh, information about what they were finding and one of the specific places they were talking about was in a room where uh, MRIs are are conducted I can't tell you exactly where that is on those grounds but that's the latest information that we have And walk us through this latest video released by the IDF, which we should note, um, CNN has geolocated it, but we can, of course, independently verify what what is said or shown, as CNN's not on the ground there, and we haven't gotten comment yet from hospital officials, but, but tell us about it. 
Right. This was a video that was just uh, published a short while ago uh, by the Israeli Defense uh, Force uh, spokesperson's office. Um, and in that video, you can see there uh, as they tour this MRI office. And we'll let you listen to a, a little bit of what the spokesperson said uh, and what they discovered in that area. Absolutely no business being inside a hospital. Military kit for one Hamas terrorist. A live grenade. Ammunition fighting vest with insignia, boots, and of course uniforms, and last but not least, standard AK-47. Inside the hot stuff, we found another go-to bag. And so it's this important to point out here, as they uh, have walked us through this video, they saw a collection of uh, firearms and other kind of military equipment. Uh, Israeli officials uh, say uh, that as this operation is ongoing, uh, they had uh, suggested that there would be uh, video concrete evidence of this command and control structure. What has been released so far doesn't exactly uh, show that. This is just one area of this massive uh, hospital complex. So um, we're waiting to see if more of this information will be released in the hours or if not days ahead. All right, Ed Lavandera in Tel Aviv, uh, thanks so much. And with us now in studio is the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Texas Republican uh, Congressman uh, Mike McCall. Uh, chairman McCall, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, so um, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, uh, your colleague, Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio, told me last week the U.S. is, quote, not pleased uh, with Israel's attempts at reducing civilian casualties. He said they're trying, uh, but it's not enough. Uh, do you agree? Well, you know, look, I, I, this hospital is a military base, essentially, the infrastructure. When I talk to the military base defense, for Hamas, for Hamas, uh, and they use you know human shields, civilians and hostages. Uh, we talked to the minister of defense uh, when I was in Israel. Uh, we said, look, you have to release uh, this you know, evidence of what they're doing, the tunnels, the hospital to get this information out. I was really pleased that Kirby uh, and the White House came out with the truth that this hospital is being used as a military uh, base, in essence, and putting uh, innocent civilians at risk and hostages. Uh, that's what they're doing. Now, the, the humanitarian pause, the Israelis support that. Netanyahu told us that. That's four hours every day to allow innocent civilians to take the road through the buffer zone they've created to southern Gaza, where the humanitarian efforts are taking place, food, medicine, water coming through the Rafah gates from Egypt into southern Gaza. Is it perfect? No. Uh, but Hamas is putting their own people at risk here. And I just, you know, when I met with the prime minister, he showed the Hamas videos of them invading Israel and, and barbarically killing, raping, decapitating and burning. Uh, so let's not lose sight of who the victim really is. So. It's interesting. I, I'm wondering what you make of the fact that uh, we hear criticism from the United Nations and from NGOs of the Israelis attacking uh, Hamas uh, in that hospital, for example. But I have yet to hear, and maybe I missed it, to be quite honest, but I have not heard, and again, this might be my fault, but I don't think I've heard the UN and some of these NGOs criticizing Hamas for having a command node underneath the hospital or for setting up bases and embedding within the population of, of, of Gaza. Uh, did, did I miss it? No, you're absolutely correct. I mean, they are a, a foreign uh, terrorist organization designated as such by U.S. law. They oppress the Palestinians. Uh, and I think it's a very important point to make that uh, when we were in Israel, 
They want to liberate the Palestinians from their oppressor. And there will not be peace in the Middle East until Hamas is eliminated as a governing body. Uh, Israel has no intention of occupying Gaza, by the way. They want to turn it over. They said the two things that can't govern would be Israel and Hamas. And the international community needs to come together. Gulf states, Jordan, Egypt, all need to come together as part of this uh, solution. And the reason why Hamas invaded in the first place, in my judgment, is a 50-year anniversary of Yom Kippur, but also, you know, the fact, uh, you know, that uh, the, the Saudis were working out this normalization agreement with Israel. That terrified Iran, and Iran lit up their proxies. Yeah. You said something just a second ago about um, Israelis being the victim, uh, and I want to play part uh, of something you said after you watched the footage that you, that you just referred to of uh, the Hamas attack on October 7th. They wanted members to see this, to never forget, to remember what happened on October 7th, as we see the narrative shifting that somehow the Palestinians are the victims. Well, I can assure you, everybody who saw that video today knows who the real victims are. The victims were the Jewish people. I, I just wonder, though, I mean, it's not really an either or. I mean, there are victims in Gaza, too, right? Of course. Yeah. And the Palestinians are victims of Hamas, just as the Jewish people are victims of Hamas. This is the largest killing of Jewish people since my father's war, World War II, in the Holocaust. Uh, and that, you know, is, is hugely important. Our gripe is not with the Palestinian people. We want to liberate them from their oppressor. And so for the protesters, I, I, I'm not sure. That, first of all, it'd be great if they could see this video. But secondly, what I'm seeing on social media is a disinformation campaign run by Iran, Russia, and China. Because remember, TikTok is running a lot of this stuff. They control the algorithms. That If you type in Israel and Palestinian, it's going gonna, it's gonna to feed you information that's pro-Hamas. Mm -hmm. uh, today, there was another instance where a U.S. warship shot down a drone they think originated from Yemen. Um, this comes after a string of attacks by Iran-backed proxies on U.S. forces in the Middle East. What's your message to Americans who fear that all of this could quickly evolve or devolve, rather, into a wider war, um, whether it's uh, the U.S. fighting uh, Hezbollah or the Houthi rebels or more? And people are, people are genuinely afraid. I mean, the U.S. has been attacked uh, in Syria and Iraq. And people are afraid that this is going to end up uh, with U.S. boots on the ground. Yeah, and this is a nightmare scenario. My committee uh, will produce the authorization of use of military force. We're not authorized to hit Hezbollah, Hamas, uh, or Iran, for that matter. We don't want to see that happen. So deterrence is really key here, right? So you have the carrier strike force in the Mediterranean the carrier strike force that's going into the Persian Gulf, and a nuclear submarine, all providing that deterrence. Now, we've been hit 55 times right. in so, Iraq and Syria with, so only what kind three, of with only three responses. I brought this up at the classified briefing that I uh, monitored the other day. You know, that's not deterrence. Right. But I do give the administration credit for this. The president's been very strong on Israel, and they have put force protection in the region to make sure that this doesn't uh, lead to Hezbollah firing their 100,000 rockets, which would overload the Iron Dome. But if, the, if all that presence in the Mediterranean isn't providing the deterrence to dissuade the Houthi rebels or Hezbollah from attacking uh, U.S. forces, then what will? 
I think they, they need to respond stronger to these attacks. Uh, they're very worried about firing rockets into Yemen. Uh, again, an authorization of use of military force. Right. That's defense of Israel, not our troops. So our troops in Iraq and Syria, that, that's Article II self-defense. Uh, and, but they don't have authorization to hit Yemen uh, or Hezbollah in Lebanon or Hamas, for that matter, in Gaza. And I think that's, now we don't want this to escalate. Right. And I think the deterrence is the best way to ensure that does not happen. Um, and I think Congress should be talking about this a lot, that we are prepared to do an authorization uh, if that will deter uh, a, an escalation. You guys should be talking about it instead of uh, shooting elbows to each other's kidneys in the halls, right? <laughs> Chairman Mike McCall, thanks so much for being here. Coming up next. I was involved in that. I know, so. I know. What's really re uh, remarkable video, body cam footage from a member of Hamas showing his unbelievable free reign during the October 7th attacks. Video you only see on CNN. It's shocking and horrifying. Stay with us. And we're back with our world lead when Hamas terrorists uh, broke through the border fence and began their attack on October 7th. Uh, many were wearing GoPro cameras. They wanted to document their terrorist attack. Uh, some of the footage would be used as Hamas propaganda, but not all of it because uh, some of the terrorists were killed. And CNN obtained exclusive video from the Israeli military. The IDF says it shows the reality of what happened, which many call Israel's 9-11. One long continuous video shows 100 minutes of horror. We have to warn you, some of what you're about to see is graphic and upsetting. An explosion before dawn on October 7th. The time is here and the attack is underway. Allahu Akbar, God is great, they chant as they cross the breached fence. Go right, go right, go right, they say. Less than two minutes later, they cross the second security fence. They are in Israel, heading towards a kibbutz. The sun is up, and a day that will reshape the region has begun. This video comes from the body cam of one of the terrorists who took part in the attack. It was obtained exclusively by CNN from the Israel Defense Forces. For the first time, we also see video inside Hamas tunnels before the attack. It is a look into a network of tunnels with what appear to be supplies stored in the darkness. Writing on the walls in Arabic says what's hidden is far worse. Above ground, the gunman fires his first shots. Go on, man, go on, man, he screams. They stop on the way. More than a dozen militants gather here to prepare for the next assault. One has several rocket-propelled grenades on his back. Minutes later, a group advances across an open field, moving towards the village of Kisufin. The gunman charges the last bit and spots an Israeli soldier on the ground. Others join in celebration. Moments later, he is more composed as he turns the camera on himself. He says his name and that he's 24 years old. He's a father. He says he killed two Israeli soldiers. He asks God for victory and well-deserved martyrdom. On motorbikes now, they keep advancing, moving together along empty Israeli roads. 
or nearly empty. The man cheers as he sees bodies on the road. His is not the first wave. He rounds a corner. Here, we have seen this place before, among the first videos to come out after the attack. This is dash cam video from a car on the same road moments earlier. The car approaches a group of militants who open fire. The car coasts, its driver almost certainly dead by now. It is just after 7.40 in the morning. After a quick reload, the group approaches a military base near the kibbutz of Re'im. For 65 minutes since crossing the Gaza fence, they have had nearly free reign in Israel. The gunman closes the distance with a weapon he took from an Israeli soldier, opening fire, and fire comes back. This man's part of the attack comes to an end. The terror is just beginning. One of the questions asked by someone in this group in the 100 minutes of video we saw is, where are the soldiers? And that's a question the IDF will have to answer in the investigations that follow this war. And those investigations from those we have talked to will be long and thorough as they try to figure out what went wrong on October 7th. Jake, if I may say, this was some very difficult uh, video to watch and we had to look at it numerous times in the making of this piece. So I would like to thank the team that worked with me on this. Pierre, my producer, Pete, my editor, and our translators who helped us with this, Norhan and Magdi. Yeah. Pretty brutal. Oren Lieberman in Tel Aviv, thanks so much. For hours now, President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping have been meeting behind closed doors. The length of the meeting may speak to just how much tension there is to talk through. We'll get into that next. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Also on our world lead, President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping are in the third hour of their talks out there in California. Both are attending a summit of leaders from countries that border the Pacific Ocean. This meeting comes as U.S.-China relationship may be at its lowest point since relations were normalized in the late 1970s. At the start of this meeting, on camera, both leaders tried to sound and look optimistic. I value our conversation because I think it's paramount that you and I understand each other clearly, leader to leader, with no misconceptions or miscommunication. Planet Earth is big enough for the two countries to succeed, and one country's success is an opportunity for the other. 
CNN's MJ Lee is in San Francisco, and CNN's Mark Stewart is joining us from Beijing. MJ, uh, what is President Biden hoping to accomplish here? And do we have any hints yet about how things are going in this third hour of their meeting so far? Well, according to President Biden himself, one of the goals is simply to change the relationship for the better. Uh, Jake, U.S.-China relations had hit such a rock bottom that when the two leaders met uh, around last year, about a year ago, on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Indonesia, the goal there was simply to establish a floor in that uh, relationship. Now, heading into this summit today, U.S. officials are saying that what they want is to reestablish diplomacy and particularly uh, open up those lines of communication that they say are so important between two superpowers like the U.S. and China, and particularly focusing on that military-to-military communication that China had recently severed. Uh, when the two leaders met each other and greeted each other here, uh, they did acknowledge that things had been rocky at times. Take a listen. China-U.S. relationship has never been smooth sailing over the past 50 years or more, and it always faces problems of one kind or another. Yet it has kept moving forward amid twists and turns. Mr. President, we know each other for a long time. We haven't always agreed, which would not have surprised anyone. But our meetings have always been candid, straightforward, and useful. And candid conversations, of course, Jake, means that they are going to be touching on uh, some tough issues for the two countries. U.S. officials had said heading into this summit that President Biden uh, does intend to discuss with President Xi issues related to Taiwan, including their upcoming elections. U.S. officials do not want ch the Chinese uh, trying to interfere with those elections. Uh, there's also the issue of China's provocations in the South China Sea. The spy balloon is expected to come up as well. But again, the big hope for the the U.S. is to have uh, the start of improved relations between the two countries. And Mark, what's the attitude where you are in Beijing? How is this meeting being interpreted in China? It's interesting, Jake. We've been looking at social media. We've been looking at state media, which is essentially the government's messaging service. And there is very much a theme of encouragement and optimism concerning U.S.-China relations. In fact, one phrase that caught my attention was this idea of cooperation over competition. And this optimism actually may be very much needed and is important for Beijing to project, because if we look at China right now, there are a number of domestic struggles it's facing, including a slow-going economy, high youth unemployment, as well as a housing crisis. I was talking to one analyst. One takeaway that China would like to see from this meeting is more foreign investment, including that from the United States. Hence, this air of optimism that China and Beijing are trying to project right now. All right, MJ Lee and Mark Stewart, thank you both. Coming up, why Hunter Biden believes he has good reason to subpoena Donald Trump, and that's not the only name on his subpoena list. Stay with us. In our law and justice lead, Hunter Biden, the president's son, wants to subpoena former President Donald Trump and three other senior officials, including former Attorney General Bill Barr. Hunter Biden's lawyers claim that the former president applied political pressure to 
launch a criminal investigation of him that led to three federal gun charges against him. Hunter Biden has pleaded not guilty to them. Let's bring in CNN's Paula Reed. Paula, the twists and turns of this case are quite fascinating, as always. What information are Hunter Biden's lawyers hoping to garner with these subpoenas? So they would hope to get documents and other evidence that would support their argument that Hunter has been investigated and charged as the result of improper political pressure. We know, for example, former Attorney General Bill Barr talked about in his book how Trump called him and asked about the status of that investigation. Barr refused to engage, but that's the kind of thing that they're looking for here. Now, I will note that when Hunter Biden's plea deal fell apart earlier this year and he was subsequently charged, it was a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney handling the case, but none of these other officials were in office. But this is also part of the more forward-leaning strategy that Hunter and his attorneys have been taking. It's more aggressive. They're punching back at people who they perceive uh, have targeted Hunter over the past several years. I want to turn to the civil fraud case uh, in New York against uh, Trump and the Trump family. Today, Trump's legal team filed for a mistrial alleging that the judge who will decide the case is biased against him. Is this like a just like a legal Hail Mary, like we're going to lose this case, so might as well just try to get a mistrial? Jake, usually I completely avoid the sports analogies, but even I can tell you that yes, indeed, this, this is a Hail Mary. But they're not necessarily focused on winning in court, right? Part of this is about the court of public opinion, because they're arguing, once again, that the judge and his clerk are politically biased against him. Now, the former president is currently under a gag order that prevents him from attacking the clerk, but this is another way to make that argument uh, in public. But of course, it's the judge who's been overseeing this trial that has already found him liable for fraud that needs to decide on this. It's expected that he is not going to grant this, but it could also be appealed. Also today, there's so many trials. There's so many trials. It's very difficult. God bless all of them for my job security. (laughs) Uh, Also today, a judge overseeing the election subversion case in Georgia says um, that he plans to lock down sensitive evidence after the recent leak of videotaped interviews of defendants who struck plea deals with prosecutors. This was our A block at five o'clock yesterday, speaking of job security. What can you tell (laughs) us about that? So of all the trials that I covered, this is one of the stranger things that we've seen. We saw these videos leak. These were the statements that several Trump allies gave as they entered plea deals with Fulton County. Sidney Powell, Janet Ellis, yeah. And there are others that we haven't seen yet. So these leak, and then they try to figure out, all right, who done it? And a defense attorney for one of these defendants, Harrison Floyd, said in an email to the district attorney, it was us but then rescinded that and said, actually, no, just kidding. That was a typo. It wasn't us. And then today in court, attorneys for another defendant, Misty Hampton, said, actually, we are the ones that leaked this information. We believe the public had a right to see this. So the judge, understandably, has here issued a protective order to prevent the leak of additional sensitive information. Now, several media organizations, including CNN, are opposed to this kind of protective order, believing there's a public interest in seeing evidence like this. But the judge notes that, look, there are some things that a jury will never see. There is a reason for that. So the protective order is going to stand. So it's unlikely, though not impossible, we'll see any other leaks. Out of I'm always County. in favor of leaks. Always Ditto. in full transparency. Agreed. Get it all out. And leak it to us. Leak it to us and let the American people see it. All right, Paula Reed, good to see you. Let's say Donald Trump doesn't make the cut as a 2024 GOP nominee. It could happen. Unlikely, but it could happen. Who would be a better choice for Republicans? Governor Ron DeSantis? or Governor Nikki Haley? I'll pose that question to a third Republican presidential candidate. Next. 
President Biden slamming Donald Trump, accusing the former president of using language similar to Nazis after Trump in a speech in New Hampshire on Saturday called his political rivals vermin. Biden warned donors at a campaign event that Trump would use his second term for revenge and retribution, saying, quote, there's a lot of reasons to be against Donald Trump, but damn, he shouldn't be president. With me now, Republican candidate for president, Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey. Uh, governor, uh, do you agree with President Biden's warning? You bet. I absolutely do. And look, not only is it awful, but it is reminiscent of the worst language used in Nazi Germany during the 30s. Um, and look, I mean, I'm used to this guy doing this stuff. I mean, you know, the Florida Republican Party 10 days ago or so, he got on the stage because I had criticized him in a speech that I had been there earlier in the day and, you know, called me a fat pig. I mean, you know, this is a guy who there's nothing he won't say or do if you don't kiss his rear end. I think one of the, the alarming things about it, though, is that the de dehumanizing rhetoric isn't just rhetoric. There's this element of violence that he's really introduced uh, an acceptability to in the Republican Party uh, that we've seen play out uh, and continues to play out. Look, I think that what he's done with his use of language um, is to give permission to a lot of people who then believe they can take it even further and they can actionize the things that he's saying, weaponize the things that he's saying. Um, and most people won't use that type of language because they know there's a risk of that. He doesn't care. Yeah. He just doesn't care, Jake. I mean, his view is if it's good for him at that moment, he'll do it. And, and, and then if something bad happens, he'll disown any responsibility for it. You just returned from a trip to Israel and you gave a, a major foreign policy address today in which you said the world needs to make sure Israel has the time and the resources that Israel needs before there can be any calls for a ceasefire. Uh, President Biden um, has agreed with you on the ceasefire, but he has been calling for a humanitarian pause for two reasons, to help secure the release of hostages taken by Hamas and also to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza um, for the civilians. Um, do you disagree with the humanitarian pause? Look, I don't think it's our call. I think it's the call of the Israeli Defense Forces. Look, they're in a war, Jake. And the fact is that they need to do what they need to do to eliminate the threat of Hamas. Uh, I was at uh, the Kerfaza kibbutz 600 yards from the Gaza border on Sunday. When you see the utter destruction there, um, I went to one home where a 24-year-old couple used to live. Uh, they were both murdered on October 7th. The blood is still all over their couches and on the floors of their home. And I counted them, Jake. There was 140 bullet holes in the walls. I mean, you cannot negotiate with folks like this um, because their goal is simply to eradicate not just Israel, but it's to eradicate the Jewish people. And so, you know, I understand that we don't want any loss of innocent civilian life, but let's remember two things. There was a ceasefire on October 6th, and it was Hamas that broke it on October 7th. And secondly, you, you cannot allow people in Gaza to be used as human shields and all the rest and then blame that on the Israelis. It is Hamas that's enslaving their own people. Do you think that there is any good that can come out of this? In other words, is there any hopes for a two-state solution from this? You get rid of Hamas, if that's even possible, because in some ways Hamas is an idea as much as it is a terrorist group. You get rid of Hamas, 
Is there some way that a Palestinian state emerges out of this? Well, it's one of the things, Jake, that I, I was saying in Israel this weekend and I've been saying publicly here is that the first two priorities are obviously to protect Israel's territorial integrity, the safety and security of their people. And second is to eliminate Hamas as a military and governing force in the Gaza. But the third is to continue to isolate Iran because Iran is the banker of terrorism in that region and really in large parts of the world. And so and a two-state solution is part of the way to continue to isolate Iran. Um, but you also need Arab neighbors to continue to be willing to work with you. And so the very tough needle that Israel needs to thread is to do what they need to do militarily, but not go so overboard that it looks just like retribution. And then you're going to tie the hands of other reasonable Arab states who want to have relationships with Israel and want to use it to isolate Iran even further than they're isolated already. Do you, do you support a two-state solution, I ultimately? Do. I do. Yeah. Um, let's, let me ask you one political question. Um, you, I know you're in it to win it. You want to win. Um, and I, I understand that you, you definitely think that Donald Trump should not be president. Let me just ask you, between Nikki Haley and, and Ron DeSantis, do you think that one of them would be a better president or a least worst president than the other? Not ready to make that call yet. Um, I think there's a lot more to learn and a lot more for them to show. But what I will say is that it's, it's really very discouraging to me that you heard Nikki Haley on the stage Wednesday night say Donald Trump was the right president for the right time and have her say that she would be willing, she was inclined to pardon him. And for Ron DeSantis to say all the supportive things he said about Donald Trump, including, remember, both of them raised their hand on the stage in the first debate and said they would support him even if he's a convicted felon. George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin are rolling in their graves. If they knew that anyone would have had the audacity as a felon, which Donald Trump will be come this spring, uh, to run for president, and that other people running for the office would be willing to support someone like that, they would have added you can't be a convicted felon to age 35 and natural born American citizen as requirements for the presidency. And to say that you could be the rightful heir of the legacy of Washington and Adams and Lincoln and FDR as someone who say, I will support a convicted felon, that gives me grave concerns, Jake, and about their judgment and whether it's just nothing more than craven politics. And by the way, one last thing, you can't beat him unless you try to beat him. I mean, they're continuing to cuddle up to the guy. He's up by 30 points. And so I'm trying to beat him. They're trying to come in a very respectable second. Uh, I don't think that's the way to run any race. It's never the way I've run one, and I'm not going to run this one that way. Former Governor Chris Christie, welcome back from Israel. Good to see you, sir. Jake, thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. And we are just getting word that the meeting between Presidents Biden and Xi Jinping just wrapped up in California after nearly three hours. Meanwhile, the House Committee on China is releasing a frightening new report about the discovery of a drug lab in California that had vials containing, according to the labels, the AIDS virus, COVID, and more. The top Republican and top Democrat on that committee will be here with their report, given first to CNN. That's next. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, an all-out war between President Biden and the state of New Hampshire. No shots fired, but Biden will not be on the state's primary ballot. That's big, and it could have major implications on his 2024 re-election chances. Plus, fed up in Texas, Republican Governor Greg Abbott so frustrated 
with the federal government and what he sees as lax border enforcement. He's going another route. He's trying to make border crossings illegal at the state level, trying to give local law enforcement and judges the power to make arrests and deport violators. Will the Biden administration step in? Could this go all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court? And leading this hour, President Biden and Xi Jinping may be all smiles in front of the cameras, but there is simmering tension behind the scenes from spy balloons to cyber attacks to military showdowns and trade wars. Friction as leaders of these two world superpowers meet. The White House just announced the, B- the Biden-Xi meeting has wrapped up and CNN's David Culver joins us now from California. David, are you hearing anything about how this meeting went? The meeting uh, started obviously with reasonably optimistic statements and smiles by both leaders. It did. It felt like it started on a positive tone, Jake. I'm a bit surprised, actually, that it went over uh, just a little over two hours as I look at the clock here, wrapped up around 1.35 local time. I I think we all saw that long list of issues between the two countries, and you expected it to perhaps even go over the four hours that were allotted. But we should also point out they are still together. It's moved on now to a second portion of the summit, and that's essentially a working lunch. The, The two will dine together and no doubt continue discussions. But you mentioned that optimistic tone starting things off, and we expected that from President Biden. There's a bit more transparency on the U.S. side going into this. Of course, they wanted to cool some of those tensions. It's another issue off his plate if he can essentially stabilize things between the U.S. and China. What surprised me was President Xi in those opening remarks. He actually even spoke a little bit longer than President Biden. Here's a little bit of what they had to say. We have to ensure that competition does not veer into conflict. And we also have to manage it responsibly, that competition. It is an objective fact that China and the United States are different in history, culture, social system and development paths. However, as long as they respect each other, coexist in peace and pursue win-win cooperation, they will be fully capable of rising above differences. President Xi went on to say that the U.S. and China have a 50-year-plus relationship. It's not always been smooth sailing. There have been twists and turns, yet the key in all of it is it has continued to move forward. Kind words, Jake, but we'll see if the substance follows here. And David, how is President Xi's visit to the U.S. playing in China? This has really surprised me, Jake. I mean, the, the three years that I lived there, of course, it was around the time of the pandemic as well. But the portrayal of the U.S. from state media in China was rarely positive. And what we have seen in the past 24 hours are, are glowing headlines and remarks, cherishing people-to-people exchanges between the U.S. and China, revisiting President Xi's past trips in an almost romanticizing way and seemingly very hopeful. And, and that's important because obviously we know it's heavily controlled by the CCP. So it's in many ways an indication of what the sentiment is from the leadership. But the one headline, and you can see the Xinhua article, it goes on to say that flying across the Pacific and feeling the warm current of people-to-people exchange between China and the United States, Jake, those are not words that you see very often in, in what is normally a very combative tone from state media there. Hmm. And what's ahead for President Biden after this meeting? Yeah, so the other main event is the venue where I'm standing at right now. It's APEC. And so you've got 21 Asia-Pacific economies coming together to discuss many of the regional issues. 
U.S.-China is huge in all of that. Of course, those economies are looking at the U.S. and China relationship and trying to figure out how that's going to shake out and how that in turn will trickle down to impact them. So they're very much clued in as to what's happening at this summit. And then the president will meet with the president of Mexico, Andres Manuel López Obrador, and that's expected on Friday. The topics there, Jake, immigration and fentanyl. All right, David Culver in San Francisco, thanks so much. President Biden is scheduled to answer reporters' questions about today's meeting at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. CNN will, of course, provide live coverage. With us now to discuss the chairman and the ranking Democrat of the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, Republican Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, Democratic Congressman Raja Krishnamoorthy of Illinois. Um, I, I'm curious as to what both of you um, want or are looking for out of today's meeting between Presidents Biden and Xi, uh, Gallagher and Krishnamoorthy in that order, if you, could, if you could respond. I think the best thing that could come out of this is potentially the reestablishment of a crisis communication channel. Think a military-to-military -military phone that exists to minimize the potential for a miscommunication or to deal with if there's an accidental collision uh, in and around the first island chain. That would be a productive step going forward. That by itself would not be sufficient to avoid a war. We need a deterrent by denial posture, but it could be constructive. The worst case scenario would be if we relieve sanctions or 301 tariffs in return for a promise of future cooperation. Time and again, we've seen with the CCP, we pay cash up front, their check is always in the mail. So we just need to be, make sure we don't fall into that trap again. I think that uh, I would echo the sentiment about reopening the uh, military to military communications channel. I'd also like to see progress with regard to reducing fentanyl precursors coming out of China, going into Mexico, and then flooding our market, through, flooding our country through the Sinaloa cartel. I think that the CCP could control that a lot better and reduce that uh, flow of fentanyl ultimately reaching our country. So you're also here to release details of an investigation by your committee in brief last December a local official in the small town of Reedley in Central California near Fresno, a warning, some of this is graphic, uh, that official stumbled on a clandestine lab in what was supposed to be a vacant warehouse. The lab contained thousands of vials of biological substances and mice used for testing. Subsequent inspections determined labels on some of the vials uh, said in Mandarin and in code that they contained infectious pathogens, including the AIDS virus and COVID. And, and tuberculosis and the deadliest known form of malaria. One freezer was labeled Ebola. All of that's frightening enough. The lack of response uh, from the U.S. government seems uh, alarming. Uh, uh, Chairman Gallagher, um, what's going on? Well, were it not for the work of local officials who saw a essentially a pipe coming out of the building that didn't belong, uh, we may not have discovered this. And when they tried to contact federal government entities like the CDC, in some cases they were hung up on. So I think what this investigation has revealed is that we don't have in place adequate tripwires to detect and prevent biolabs like this from being established. And in many cases, you're able to buy these pathogens and some of this material online. That's unacceptable. And the individual in question was a criminal with a long criminal record with dubious ties to the PRC. This was a massive problem and we're hoping this will spur 
productive legislative action going forward to prevent this from happening again. Right. The committee found that the lab was owned by a fugitive, a Chinese fugitive from Canada. He entered the U.S. illegally. He was getting payments from Chinese banks. According to your report, he was arrested last month for allegedly uh, reselling counterfeit medical testing kits. Um, uh, Congressman Christian Morthy, do we think that, do you think that, that the Chinese government knew what he was doing? Do, do we have any idea what exactly he was doing? No, we haven't seen evidence of that. However, I would go back to two things that Mike pointed out. One is um, anybody, whether it's a fugitive, whether it's a fraudster, whether it's um, a domestic terrorist, can purchase very dangerous pathogens online without very little vetting, if any vetting at all. I mean, you, you need an identification, uh, a driver's license to get Sudafed in any lo local pharmacy, but you don't need even that to get Ebola online. The second thing is we need to equip the CDC and other agencies with the tools and authorities to proactively prevent this type of situation from arising in the first place. So, um, Congressman Chairman Gallagher, what, what, what should happen now, do you think? Well, right now we're actually holding a, a, a quasi-hearing on the event. We have uh, biosecurity experts, we have the local officials, and we're hoping that out of this conversation comes an agenda for bipartisan steps we can take in this Congress to prevent this type of thing. At a broader level, I think the committee is going to be turning in the next year to these, this issue of synthetic biotechnology in general and the competition in that cutting-edge technology with the CCP. I would also say I think our intelligence community needs to develop a more sophisticated understanding of the very opaque connections between PRC nationals, you know, businesses, United Front Work Department organizations, it can be very complicated to un unpack that at times, and I'm not convinced we have the requisite expertise, even in the IC, to understand what's happening right here in America. I'm glad, Jake, if I could jump in. Yeah. One thing I'm really glad about our cooperation is that we were able to establish facts in this report and dispel some of the really horrible conspiracy theories that are out there, that this was some kind of Asian virus lab or something like that. We got to stop that kind of talk and rhetoric and just talk about the facts. No, it's, it's great to see, and it's, as always, it's great to see uh, bipartisanship uh, and, and evidence-based uh, work. Um, so uh, kudos to both of you, and thanks for coming on, and, and thanks for the work you do. Thank you. Thank you, Jake. Uh, coming up, uh, the decision today that defies President Biden's wish. New Hampshire bucking Biden, keeping him off the state's primary ballot. What could this mean for the 2024 race? Biden needs to win New Hampshire to become the president again. Stay with us. Our 2024 lead, cue the music. Yes. Seriously, other than Dave Matthews, the best sounds I've ever heard. New Hampshire announced today the state will hold its primary on January 23rd. That's one week after the Iowa Republican caucuses on January 15th and a week before, before the South Carolina Democratic primary on February 3rd. Under state law, New Hampshire must hold its primary at least one week before any other state primary. However, this puts the state at odds with a new plan proposed by the Democratic Party and backed by President Biden, who loves South Carolina, that called for South Carolina to hold the party's first primary. The move from New Hampshire today will likely cost the state of New Hampshire delegates at the Democratic Convention next summer. With us now to discuss, former Republican Congressman Joe Walsh from Illinois, former White House Communications Director for the Biden administration, Kate Benningfield. Kate, I know it's only four electoral votes. But, you know, it often comes down to it's often very close and often the Democrats are relying on those four electoral votes. Biden won them. 
Uh, Hillary won them. Obama won them. Are you are you ready to just like toss aside those four electoral votes because Joe Biden (laughs) just decided to change it all because he likes South Carolina better? Well, let's let's be clear. What Biden and the Biden team were doing here was trying to lift diversity in the primary process. He lost New Hampshire. He lost New Hampshire and he won South Carolina. That's what happened. But New Hampshire is a is a very homogenous state. Uh, South Carolina is a much more diverse state. Michigan, which is moving up in the primary process, is a much more diverse state. So for President Biden and the Biden team, this is about trying to bring in uh, voters of color into the process earlier who ultimately wind up uh, deciding the, the, uh, who the nominee is. Um, look, I think at the end of the day, is this going to have an impact? I, I'm not so sure. I mean, you saw the, uh, Democratic, uh, the chair of the Democratic Party in New Hampshire come out today and say Biden will still win New Hampshire, uh, likely through a write-in uh, campaign. At the end of the day, I think, again, what the Biden team has done is just further uh, uh, embolden uh, diverse voters in the process. That's a good thing. And look, the general election, to your point, general election, is it going to be close? Yes, it is. The general election is going to be close. The Biden campaign is going to be fighting in every state. Uh, but I don't think that these moves are going to uh, ultimately be the thing that determines uh, who wins the presidency next. You, who wins the presidency next November? I, I want to get your reaction, but I just want to say the Biden campaign is not going to be fighting in every state. And you know, one state you're not going to win: South Carolina. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Turn it into an opportunity. The Biden campaign needs kind of a shot in the arm, yeah. an active write-in campaign. I agree with Kate. It would, I think it would be fun and a story if he won New Hampshire via the write-in. I, Do I, it. I, absolutely. And I, and, I think it's certainly, and I think it's certainly possible. I, yeah. think, I think at the end of the day, voters in New Hampshire are broadly supportive of the Biden agenda. I think, understandably, leadership in New Hampshire is frustrated about the, the movement of the, uh, the primary. That's fine. That's a different beast than voters in New Hampshire coming out to say, I'd rather Joe Biden be the president than Donald Trump. Those well, are sort of two, those are two different, there's an gonna, inside game gonna, here. What are you gonna do if there's a headline that the Congressman Dean Phillips wins the Democratic primary in New Hampshire? What are you gonna do? Well, then we keep moving on to the next, uh, to the next primaries moving where Joe Biden will win. At the end of the day, if Dean Phillips wins, he's not going, as you just said, as you laid out at the top here, Dean Phillips isn't going to get delegates out of this, even if he does win in New Hampshire. But look, I think the Biden campaign feels good about the right end. And again, I would say you saw the chair of the Democratic Party in New Hampshire today say Joe Biden will still win the New Hampshire via write-in. Well, speaking of speaking of threats to Biden, listen to what West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin said, Joe, when asked if he would consider a third party run. Are you considering running for president? I will do anything I can to help my country. Is that a yes? And you're saying, does that mean you would consider it? Absolutely. Absolutely, he says. Are you, would he consider it? Absolutely. Jake, this makes no sense. It, and he also said, absolutely, Donald Trump getting reelected scares him to death. So that makes no sense. If you're scared to death of a Trump presidency, then you have to do whatever you can to help support the Democratic nominee. I'm so tired of this cutesy game that Joe Manchin's playing. And I wish the media would call him on it. <laughs> I, not well, a whole, I haven't, just for the record, I not, haven't interviewed him lately. But I can't ahead. wait no, till you do. Not a whole lot there I disagree with. Caitlin I mean, Collins Kate, is interviewing him tonight. Just a little plug for Caitlin Collins on, and her show, uh, <laughs> 9 o'clock tonight. But what, what, Listen, what I, look, Joe Manchin's in the wooing phase. He's in the phase <laughs> of this where he's, you know, he's being told by people that maybe there's a space for him. Maybe there maybe is. Maybe he can carve out some middle. But maybe okay, there but is. Let's, but Both let's, Biden wait. and Trump are unpopular. Most people in the country say they don't want either one of them. But let's look, okay, but fine. But let's look at the GOP primary as a test case here. 
the, across the board, Donald Trump is running away with the Republican primary. So sure. the idea that there is an appetite amongst Republicans for some sort of more moderate voice that Joe Manchin is going to be able to provide that, for example, Nikki Haley, a registered Republican, isn't providing, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Hey, Jay, we're, not see, just, we're not seeing that. Look, look in, in 2024, the next president's going to be the Democratic nominee or the Republican nominee. That's it. Manchin knows that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so if he really is that scared of Donald Trump, uh, he's got to quit playing this game. Why do you think it is that so many nominee? voters complain about the choices, but then there has never been a successful third party run ever? I mean, even like Teddy Roosevelt, one of the greatest presidents we've ever had, didn't have a successful third because party. Because both political parties structurally, state by state, have made it damn impossible almost to do it. And it's expensive to run for president. And the infrastructure required to run for president costs money. And for the major parties, they're raising that money. They're helping build that infrastructure. It is incredibly difficult as an independent without that financial backing from the party to build that infrastructure. Ross Perot had we the money. Have a yeah. Look, I, we should have a conversation about that. The I think Rock could win as an independent <laughs> if he ran. It would have to be somebody huge like that. So um, speaking of The Rock, there was some uh, really ugly fighting uh, going on and <laughs> threats of fighting. Uh, Kevin McCarthy <laughs> denies it, but Kevin McCarthy yeah. doesn't always tell the truth, as I think is a fair statement. You can start with the 2020 election, and I don't, it's only a two-hour show, so I can't go into every lie uh, Kevin McCarthy's told. But uh, apparently he uh, hit uh, Kevin, uh, I mean, Congressman Burchett in the kidneys. And then um, Senator uh, Mark Wayne Mullen uh, called out and wanted to fight uh, a union president. Um, here's uh, what Senator Mullen had to say about it today. First thing I thought of when I stood up, I thought, I'm going to break my hand on this guy's face. I'm going to take my wedding ring off. Uh, because when, when you're fighting and you learn how to punch correctly, you really shouldn't break your hand. But when you aren't doing it with wraps, So you actually you thought will. you were going to come to blows in that moment? I had full intentions of doing that. Absolutely. We should note he's an MMA fighter, yeah. so he actually knows. Um, what the hell's going on with your party, This is man? Trump's party. But like, they actually, like, they're actually hitting each other or threatening to hit each other. And, like, and he's fundraising off it. And look, I, I don't... I personally like enjoy watching a fight, like in a ring. You know, I don't even mind a, bind a bar fight. I personally don't even mind a bar fight. But like, what is this? They, they pro Jake, they promised us that if they took over the house, they'd give us two years of chaos and dysfunction. They're doing it. It's not a surprise that they're fighting with each other now. This is Trump's party, and they all try to emulate him. It's yeah. ugly. It's ugly. What's your take? Okay, well, my first question is, are men too emotional to lead? Because I'm just really, I'm <laughs> wondering if this, what this shows us is that men are too that. driven by their emotions to lead. Look, I, I agree completely with Joe. This is Trump's party. This is for, uh, you know, if you're an, the average voter and you're looking to what you've seen in Washington over the last few weeks, you've seen chaos of the speaker's race, then you've seen threats of a shutdown, you've seen inability to work together, and now you're seeing your members of Congress threatening to come to blows on the, well, like on the, on the floor. Kevin but McCarthy but, shot an elbow yeah, into the kidneys. Yes, or, you know, kidney punches in the hallway. Hey, Jake, we laugh. I think it'll get worse. I really do. Yeah. I think publicly it, we'll see them go at each other. Well, that's the it, thing. The normalization of violence has been going on yes. for quite some time, and now it's actually happening. Happening. Yes. Really ugly. Uh, thanks, both of you. I appreciate it. And thank you for not elbowing me in the kidneys. <laughs> I know you've wanted to. Show's not over yet. I know you've wanted to. Coming up, some of the words <laughs> behind the war between Israel and Hamas, and some ugly speech from inside the Netanyahu government that is not helping matters. Stay with us. 
New video today appears to show Israel's targeted raid inside Gaza's largest hospital. You can see medics still inside Al-Shifa Hospital evacuating patients as <laughs> dust surrounds them. Israel calls this a, quote, precise and targeted operation looking for Hamas, possibly hiding in tunnels under the hospital complex. The IDF released this video claiming to show where Hamas terrorists hid and stashed their weapons. We should note this is video being released by the IDF, the Israeli military. We cannot independently verify the contents as CNN is not on the ground there. Al-Shifa hospital officials have not yet commented on this. What is clear, conditions in this hospital are horrendous. Doctors are trying to keep the hospital running. They are running out of fuel and supplies, not to mention uh, there are reports of being interrogated by the IDF. Given the risk to civilian safety, Israel is under pressure to show proof uh, of whether there has been any indication of terrorists or hostages held there. Earlier this week, I asked the former deputy director of national intelligence in the U.S., Beth Sanner, what she thought President Biden could be doing differently regarding Israel. And I think that one of the things we can certainly do is, is lay down very, very firmly what Israel cannot do in the West Bank, because that is the thing that's going to blow up in our faces, and that makes a two-state solution impossible. Sanders' point is important, because with the world focused on Gaza, key members of the Netanyahu cabinet, the coalition government that he formed, Key members of that cabinet are throwing fire on the flames in the West Bank and in Israel. In the Israeli newspaper Haaretz on Monday of this week, columnist Odeb Bisharat called out two of the members of the Netanyahu cabinet for taking advantage of the Hamas attacks, taking advantage and using the attacks to advance their racist anti-Arab agenda. Let's start in the West Bank, as Sanders suggested we should, with Israeli Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich. Smotrich is a hateful anti-Arab bigot. He's a far-right politician in the Netanyahu coalition, and he has broad powers over civilian issues in the West Bank. Haaretz reports that since October 7th, more than 170 Palestinians have been killed in clashes with Israelis across the West Bank. Now, way back in 2005, when Israel was withdrawing from Gaza, Smotrich was arrested by the Israeli security services, the Shin Bet. Smotrich was arrested under suspicion of planning terrorist attacks. He was held by the Shin Bet for three weeks. He was suspected of planning to block major public roads and damage infrastructure. That's according to Yidiot Akronot, a major Israeli newspaper. In 2019, the former deputy head of the Shin Bet called Smotrich a, quote, Jewish terrorist. That's according to Israel's Channel 13. Now, Smotrich denies those claims. He stated he was proud of his role in opposing Israel's expulsion from Gaza, quote, noting that he was freed without any charges being filed against him, according to a report from the Times of Israel. Now, Bisharat writes in Haaretz on Monday of this week that Smotrich, quote, sees the disaster that has befallen the country as an opportunity to plunder the West Bank. The settlers 
who share his messianic ideology, have begun to carry out their plans to purge the area of its Palestinian population, unquote. As with this scene you see, of armed Israeli settlers, zealots, extremists, harassing Palestinians, wreaking havoc in the West Bank. And then there's the Minister of National Security, Itamar Ben-Gavir. Quote, immediately upon hearing of the criminal Hamas attacks, Bisharat writes, Ben-Gavir was calling for a sequel to the 2021 Arab-Jewish riots in order to devour what is left of Israeli democracy, unquote. This includes armed militias, subordinate to Ben-Gavir, wandering the streets of Tel Aviv, and, quote, the thought police, hard at work, arresting civics teacher Dr. Meyer Baruchin for posts on Facebook opposing the Israeli army's operations in Gaza and for showing compassion for Palestinian suffering, unquote. Of course, Ben-Gavir's first targets, he writes, Israel's Arab citizens who have been harassed, indicted, and arrested. Quote, not only is the blood of human beings being spilled, so is the blood of Israeli democracy or what is left of it. Around it, a crazed band is dancing joyfully. Ben-Gavir, quote, has declared war on the Arab community and not a single word of criticism has been uttered by the Israeli mainstream against this shameful spectacle, unquote. Yesterday, Ben-Gavir posted this video bragging about how Hamas terrorists are receiving, quote, the most stringent conditions. Eight handcuffed terrorists in a dark cell, iron beds, toilets in a hole in the floor, to which Israeli citizen Gil Dickman tweeted to Minister Ben-Gavir, quote, Itamar, I'm begging. My cousin is now in the hands of Hamas. He's kidnapped his cousin. Your words about the dark dungeon, the hole in the floor, the handcuffs, and the humiliation put her in real danger. Your every tweet is a match that burns the hearts of our families. I'm begging, Itamar. There are Israelis there whose life and death are in the hands of your tongue. Please stop, unquote. But thinking about such things does not really seem to be Ben Gavir's way. He is an openly racist, anti-Arab member of a far, far, far-right party that Netanyahu joined with to form his coalition. Ben-Gavir's vile views, we should know, are no surprise. Until 2020, Ben-Gavir had a portrait in his home of Baruch Goldstein. Baruch Goldstein is a Jewish terrorist who murdered 29 Palestinian worshipers in the 1994 Cave of the Patriarchs massacre. In 2015, Ben-Gavir attended a notorious, quote, wedding of hate in the West Bank. At this wedding of hate, the murder of Palestinians was celebrated, including the murder of a Palestinian infant. It's sick. Now in January, it seems like 100 years ago, but it was only 10 months ago. I asked Prime Minister Netanyahu about these two anti-Arab racists, these extremists in his government. You have appointed some individuals, controversial figures, not part of your party, 
um, including ultranationalists uh, Betsayel uh, Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gavir. They joined the Likud. I didn't join them. Right. And I, I direct policy. I I'm governing. That. I've got my two hands on the wheel, and believe me, it's going to be a good direction. Smotrich just called himself a fascist homophobe. What? He uh, suggested same-sex marriages like incest. The former deputy uh, director of Shin Bet uh, said he was a Jewish terrorist, that he tried, to, he tried to stage an event when the Gaza pullout was going on. And the other day he was saying that the, he was putting out these horrible conspiracy theories, you must have seen this, about the Shin Bet and the assassination of Rabin. I mean, these seem like rather extreme individuals. Yeah, well, a lot of people say a lot of things when they're not in power and they sort of temper themselves when they get into power. Uh, and that's certainly the, the case here. Look, uh, I'm, uh, I'm controlling the government and I'm responsible for its policies and the policies are sensible and they're responsible and continue to be that. They didn't temper themselves once they got into power. They didn't. And if Netanyahu's hands are on the wheel, the question for Netanyahu is, does he stand by the extremism of these two cabinet ministers? Because it's not just the presence of Smotrich and Ben Gavir in the Israeli government, it is the policies that they are enforcing in the West Bank and in Israel that are clearly inconsistent with the image Israel is portraying to the Western world at this crucial moment in Israel's existence that needs to be challenged. Coming up next, I'm gonna talk with the parents of an American man kidnapped and being held prisoner and hostage by the terrorists of Hamas. The grandson of Holocaust survivors, 22-year-old Omer Nutra, grew up on Long Island. He put off attending college to spend time in Israel. He eventually joined the Israel Defense Forces. He was serving as a tank commander when Hamas attacked on October 7th. His parents were notified days later by Israeli officials that their son had been taken hostage. Yesterday, they spoke in front of thousands in front of the U.S. Capitol to plea for his release. There is power in showing him the same love and compassion he has spent his young life showing everyone he meets. We all must use the power that we have to help bring Omer and all of the hostages home now. Bring them home. Bring them home. And Omer's parents, Ronan and Orna Nutra, join me now. Thank you for, both for being here. I'm sorry it's under such uh, horrible uh, circumstances. First, I just want to note um, that the the that Omer is the is the um, descendant of Holocaust uh, survivors and and uh, related to people who perished in the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. That's right. Which um, I'm just wondering that connective tissue between that horror and this horror, and thank God Omer's alive, but, but the deadliest day for Jews since the Holocaust, mm -hmm. if you think about that um, at all. Yeah, of course we do. I mean, uh, Omer's uh, decision to uh, be a protector of Israel and join the IDF stems a lot from his understanding of the nest that it's necessary to have a strong Jewish state. His grandparents on both sides were survivors of the Holocaust and they luckily made their way to Israel and were the founders 
of the country. Omar was born on, in New York City, yeah. grew up on Long Island, but he always had the sense of this dual citizenship belonging and the knowledge that a lot of his family are in Israel and they're all representing generations that uh, had to have the independence of Israel on their mind as, as, a, as a key factor for the Jewish people. Yeah, and this is, people think about this is ancient history. Your grandmother, she lost nine of her brothers and sisters killed in the Holocaust. That's and right. this is not ancient history to a lot of people. It's not at all. Um, yesterday, President Biden uh, was asked if he had a message for families such as yours. And he said, hang, in, hang on, we're coming. You've been waiting now for 40 days. Is there anything you would say to President Biden, if you could? We definitely see his leadership. We definitely see his commitment and his administration. We like to see our kid and the rest of the hostages come back. We For know that the US government has an obligation to bring the American hostages back. We want to see it. For people who can't understand what you're going through, and I don't think anybody can, except for people who have had loved ones as hostages. Um, what is it like, especially not knowing? We're really trying to be patient, but it's been excruciating and exhausting. We don't know anything. Like Ronan said, it's been 40 days. We don't know whether they're alive. We don't know if they're alive and what conditions they're being kept, if they're being tortured. It's unimaginable. It's, it's hard to describe. Um, and you last spoke to your son the night before October 7th. How did, how did he sound that night? He actually sounded very relaxed. Um, it was the end of a stretch of the Jewish holidays, and they were working really hard to protect the border. Uh, there had been a lot of riots on the border and things throughout the holidays. And in the two days preceding the events, it was kind of quiet. And this was a Friday night, so it was Shabbat in Israel. And we spoke to him seven hours behind New York time. And he sounded pretty relaxed. And he said, I'm really looking forward to a quiet weekend. As we were going to sleep, we started to see missiles going by on uh, red alerts on our phones. Oh, you have the you have the app. Yeah, we're looking at the newspaper just before mm -hmm. we go to sleep, and uh, and all of a sudden we see that there is also a ground invasion. That's not something that happens, and we knew that our son is there. Immediately, I called him. Hey, Omer, what's going on? Are you okay? But we never heard back. He didn't answer. He didn't answer to our texts. As as the of course we didn't sleep that night, and as the hours went by, we realized that something really bad was happening because he's really very responsive. What would you like people to know about Omer? Well, Omer was born in New York City. Um, I was nine months pregnant with him on 9-11. So he just recently celebrated his 22nd birthday. He's in captivity. He's this big guy, uh, always a big smile. Um, you know, happy and with a good sense of humor and uh, uh, kind of naturally people attract to him. You know, they, they listen to him. He's, he's always taking the extra step. He loves sports. So he not only is a good athlete, but he wants to be the captain of the sports team. He was very involved in his youth group and uh, grew to be the regional president of New York uh, area. And, you know, 
were getting a million messages from people that were that knew him, that were impacted by him, and how um, inclusive he was. And he made sure that everyone felt, you know, that they had a place and that they were seen in all the events and all of that. So it's a really good guy. Like any American kid, he's interested in the NBA, the NFL, yeah. hip hop music, just normal. But he knows all the stats. We we always said, why do you care so much? He said, I love it. It's Mm -hmm. He needs to know the numbers. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to keep we're going to keep covering the hostages. We're going to keep covering it. Keep making sure that the American people. We've got to tell their stories. Yes, yeah. it's yeah. forty days. It can take time. We understand, but we need them back. We're going to keep focusing on it, and we keep praying for Omer. Thank, Thank you for you. being here. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having Orna me. and Rona Nutra. Appreciate it. Thank you. We'll be right back. In our national lead, crossing illegally into Texas from Mexico could become a state crime. A bill that Texas Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican, is expected to sign would give law enforcement in Texas the power to arrest and order migrants to leave the United States. A related bill devotes more than a billion dollars to build a border wall, which, according to state lawmakers, would largely be paid for by the taxpayers of Texas there. CNN's Rosa Flores is in Houston. And Rosa, there are questions about the constitutionality of this legislation. Is it constitutional? Well, you know, Jake, 30 judges, 30 former immigration judges issued a statement saying that this bill is unconstitutional because immigration is a federal power. And these former judges point to a specific portion of this bill that gives the power to state judges to issue orders to remove individuals from the state of Texas. That's a really fancy way of saying giving them the power of deportation, to deport individuals. Now, there's a real concern that this bill will lead to the racial profiling of Latinos in the state of Texas. Latinos make up 40% of the population of this state. And there's a real concern because this bill gives all law enforcement, including local law enforcement, the ability, the power to enforce this bill, which gives them the, the power to arrest. Now, this was one of the issues that was discussed heavily during debate for this bill. I want to take you inside the Texas House. Take a listen. Let's say Mary and I are walking together near the border. Are they going to look at her skin color versus mine and make a determination? Surely she needs to be investigated for potentially crossing? Well, <laughs> I think... I think clearly the officers are going to make, they're look, going to look and, at the entire. And this entirety. is not funny because my wife is Hispanic. And there is a difference when I am driving a car, I see an officer and I wave. There is a difference for people. Right. Chairman Wally said it. We don't live in their skin. And Jake, the author of the bill maintains that this will not lead to racial profiling in the state of Texas. And as you know, Governor Abbott is expected to sign this bill. How much would this cost? taxpayers in Texas? That's a great question, Jake, because I listened to hours of testimony, both on the House floor and the Senate floor and in House and Senate committees. And that question was asked over and over of the author of this bill and multiple versions of this bill, and they couldn't answer the question because the state of Texas right now, lawmakers, the author of this bill doesn't know, doesn't have an estimation of the number of individuals who would be arrested under this bill. Now, there's several layers to the cost here. Counties, county governments are very concerned about the cost of this bill because, as you know, they run jails and they're worried about their already packed jails. 
And Jake, you know that due process doesn't take just jails. They need judges, they need translators, uh, they need other personnel within the justice system, and they're very worried, including county governments, that this is going to be very expensive for the Texas taxpayer. Jake. Rosa Flores in Houston, thank you. Coming up in about 90 minutes, a news conference with President Biden, this right after his meeting today with Chinese President Xi Jinping, where the White House now confirms they did discuss areas of difference. Keep it here on CNN for coverage. We'll be, we'll be right back after this quick break. In our money lead attention, shoppers, something to be thankful for this year. Thanksgiving should be a bit cheaper, and you have the turkeys to thank for that. You could grab a whole bird for less than 30 bucks this year. That's down 5.6% from last year. Unfortunately, things still are not as cheap as they were before the pandemic, but at least some reprieve, according to the USDA. Thanksgiving discount discounts could make some prices even lower. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I will see you tomorrow. Have a good night.